Every Sunday morning when we're here together in person at Kansas Christian Church for our time of worship, we spend a little time sharing prayer requests during our worship time. We feel like that's very important. And as we moved into online worship, we continue to have a Monday evening online prayer time. 6.30 in the evening on Monday evenings, we get together online on our Facebook page and we have a short time of prayer. We think, we think sharing prayer requests is important. And during the course of the week, it is not uncommon for, uh, for us to get phone calls or for us to be visited by someone who says, would you pray for me? This past week, I got a few phone calls from friends who desperately needed someone to pray for them. It's not uncommon to ask, will you pray for me? Or will you pray for a friend of mine? And, and we pray. We pray with confidence that God hears us. We pray with expectation of an answer to our prayer. We pray with the hope that God answers the prayers the way that we would like them to be answered. But who answers God's prayers? <laughs> that's, that's kind of a strange question, and maybe it's more proper to ask who answers Jesus's prayers. You know, all through the Gospels, Jesus is praying. We see him praying again and again to the Father. And then we come to John chapter 17, and the entire chapter is, is one long prayer, a prayer to the Father, to be sure. It is a prayer to the Father. It is a prayer to God. But you and I are invited to listen in. You and I are invited to read this prayer, to hear this prayer, and, and I can't help but be aware as I read through John 17 that you and I have a part to play in being the answer to Jesus's prayer. We have a, a hand in answering Jesus's prayer and maybe more properly, we have a heart in answering his prayer. Over the next three weeks, as we move towards as we move towards Palm Sunday and then move on to Easter, we are going to spend the next three weeks in John 17, looking at the prayer that Jesus prayed the night before he was crucified. And it's important, it's important to under, in understanding this prayer, it's important in understanding it to see the timing of this prayer. Jesus is very concerned about time all the way through John's gospel. You might remember back in John chapter 2, Jesus attends a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, and they run out of wine, and his mother comes to him and says, do something. And Jesus' response to his mother at that point is, my hour has not yet come. And all the way through John, Jesus keeps having these moments where his hour has not yet come. Come. He, he is anticipating an appointed hour. He is waiting, and again and again he returns and says, The hour is not yet here. And then we come to John chapter 17, and we come to verse 1. And it says there, John writes, When, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. This is it. This is the hour that Jesus has waited for. This is the culmination of everything that he has done all through John's gospel, all through his ministry. And it's here in this prayer that he prays, he prays about himself. He prays about the church. And in a very important way, he's praying, he's praying for you and me. 
and how we might glorify God together. As we begin our look at this passage, let's begin with verses 1 through 6. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all, to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In this prayer, Jesus says to the Father, he prays to the Father, I have come to glorify you. I've come to glorify God. And now he is returning. And as he returns, his, his prayer is that he would be glorified again with the Father. And then he prays for you and me that through our faith, through the way that we live our lives and through the lives that we touch, that we also might glorify him and we might glorify the Father. He prays he prays that we might understand that in a very important way, you and I are the prayer. We are the answer to the prayer that Jesus is praying. So how, how do we do that? How do we glorify God? How do we glorify Jesus? How do we, how do we answer his prayer? The question, that's the question we're seeking to answer as we unpack this whole chapter over the course of the next few weeks. We're seeking to capture an understanding of His glory and how we glorify Him in ourselves. And so as Jesus begins His prayer, and as we listen in, we can't help but hear what He prays for Himself. We can't help but hear what He prays for His followers and, and ultimately for us. In His prayer, we hear a call for us to trust. We hear a call for us to trust God's promise of eternal life. And if we're honest, that promise of eternal life, that's, that's why we're here in the first place. That's probably what drew us to our faith. We wanted to go to heaven. We understood that life is short. We understood that death is it's a reality we all have to face, and we want to go to heaven I have yet to have a single person come to me and say they want to be baptized. And when I ask them, why do you want to be baptized? Not a single one has ever said, because I want to glorify Jesus. I want to glorify God with the, with the glory that he had, that Jesus had before. They've never answered that. More often than not, the, the response is, I want to go to heaven. The response is, I, I realize that I need forgiveness for things that I have done, and I realize that the only source of that forgiveness is Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. I want, to, I want that forgiveness, and I want the promise of eternal life that comes with it, eternal life in heaven with Him. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's necessary for you and I to hear the way that Jesus defines eternal life because it it might be a little different than our definition of eternal life. Verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, since you, have given, since you have given Him, since you've given me authority over all flesh, and to give eternal life to all whom you have given, and this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Did you hear it? This is eternal life, that they might know you, that we might know God, that we might know Jesus. At the heart of the promise of heaven, at the heart of the promise of heaven is not this eternal reunion that we're looking forward to, eternal reunion with, with family and friends. At the heart of heaven is, is God. It's knowing God. I can't help but think back. When I was in high school, I had a friend who had just become a Christian, and she was very excited about her newfound faith. And one night we were talking, because I was a fairly new Christian also, and so we're talking about our faith, and we're talking about our churches and everything that, that we just absolutely loved and what we were excited about. And she says to me, she says, I can't wait to get to heaven. And I'm like, oh, I, hear, I understand, yeah. She says, I can't wait to get to heaven. When I get to heaven, she said, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ask God about Bigfoot. <laughs> I'm going to ask God whether or not there really was a Bigfoot. And then I'm going to ask him about the Bermuda Triangle. And I'm sitting there listening to her and I'm thinking to myself, those are great questions. What kind of questions am I going to ask? I, what if my questions sound stupid compared to her questions when I get to heaven? Those are great questions. I'm going to look so dumb. My questions aren't nearly as good. But over the years, you know, the, the more I read the Bible, the more I pray, the more people I send on ahead to heaven, the more I think about heaven, I find myself simply awestruck at the possibility of being in the full presence of God. And the more I think about it, the more I wonder, I know it's, I know it's for eternity, but will I have time for anything else but to be awestruck by his presence. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong, because heaven is an amazing reunion. That's promised to us. And I know there are a lot of people in heaven that we miss, and we can't wait to see them again. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there, that is part of the blessing that we share. Heaven will be one big reunion but you know, at the center of that reunion for you and me, at the center of that reunion is not my mom, is not grandma, it's not some great-great-grandpa I never met. At the center of that reunion is not grandchildren yet unborn that you or I might have one day. At the center of their union is the one that we glorify. At the center of the reunion is the one that we worship. This is eternal life, Jesus says. This is eternal life, that we might know Him. And the reason He, God, is at the center is because you and I have heard His call for us. You and I have heard His call for us to keep His Word. Verse 4, Jesus says to God, I, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's an interesting thought, especially here the night before his crucifixion. He says, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What is that accomplishment? Well, it, it can't be the cross because the cross has yet to happen. That's not been accomplished yet, right? No, no, the, the work that Jesus accomplished was in calling his followers, calling the 12, calling the disciples, calling the apostles, calling his church, ultimately, and calling you and me. 
calling a, a community of people who would be identified by his name to live not only with the promise of eternal life, but to live with the purpose of glorifying God. And he identifies us as those who have kept the Father's word. We continue on in verse 6. Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They have kept your word. It's an interesting phrase, and as I hear it, I can't help but go back once again to that little letter from James. We spent the last two months digging into James's letter there in the back of your Bible. And it is there in James chapter 1, verse 22, that James wrote, Be doers of the word, doers of the word, and not hearers only, because if you're hearers only, you're just deceiving yourselves. If we think, <clears throat> if we think eternal life, if we think the Christian life is just about showing up and, and being seen. We've, we've deceived ourselves. If we think that eternal life is just about saying the right words, showing up for church, and boom, we're, we're promised heaven, we've deceived ourselves. Jesus is calling us to a commitment that will identify us as belonging to him, to an obedience that gives ourselves completely over to God, completely over to his word. I think about those, as, as Jesus was praying this prayer, I think about those who must have been in his immediate thoughts, his disciples, the apostles, the twelve. I think about those who had been given to him, those who were his accomplishment at that time, those who were committed to following him. What did it cost them? What did it cost them to keep his word? You know, the Apostle John is writing these words, and in a few short years after Jesus spoke them, shortly after the crucifixion and resurrection, John's brother James was beheaded for his faith. By the time John writes this gospel, probably right towards the end of the first century, it's believed that he was the only apostle left, that the rest of them had, had been killed, had been martyred for their faith. The rest of them met their end standing firm for their faith, standing firm on the word that they had pledged themselves to. What might it cost us? What could it cost us to keep his word? The cost is high, but the promise is great. The promise is that of, of eternal life. And so with all the struggles we have ahead of us, we can't miss that in Jesus' call for us, he also gives us his assurance. He gives us his assurance of the truth of our faith. As we come to verses 7 and 8, Jesus brings us back. He brings his prayer back around to our hope, to our hope of eternal life. In verse 3, he told us that eternal life is that we might know God, that that's the center of our faith. But he doesn't want us to leave any room to think that, well, you know, this is, just a, this is just a good story. You read the Bible and it's just a good story. There are some nice lessons here. He doesn't want us to forget that our faith is in something solid. Our faith is in something trustworthy that we can be assured of the truth of what we believe. 
And so in verses 7 and 8, he closes this section of the prayer by saying this, Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and that they have believed that you sent me. See, it's not just that Jesus wants you to know God. He promises us certainty to our faith. The faith that we have isn't just a bunch of nice stories that teach us morals and values. They are founded on the truth of who Jesus Christ is, that God has sent him. And if we're going to know what God is like, we're going to know him through his son. We're going to know him through Jesus. And that in that knowledge, we find hope. We find our eternal life. This year, as we lead up to Easter, we're doing a little something called Stones of Remembrance. We're providing some little rocks out in the front entry area of the church, and we're asking people to take a stone and write down on that stone a blessing that they've received over the course of the last year. Again, 2020 took so much from us, and we're asking people to write down something that God gave them, some truth, some assurance, some gift that God gave them that they could put on that stone and not only be encouraged themselves, but encourage others. There's so many blessings that have been written on those stones already. I, I love this one. I, I love this rock in itself. It's just it's a beautiful little rock. But someone wrote John 3, 16 on this stone. Such a wonderful reminder. And it's one of those scriptures we've known forever, but somehow in the past year, it's been brought home in a special way for this person. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever would believe in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. You hear that promise? Whoever would believe in the Son, whoever would believe in Jesus, would have eternal life. Jesus says this is eternal life, that you know the Father and that you know the Son that He has sent, that you would know Him so well, that you would know that He keeps His word, you believe Him, and that you would know how to keep His word yourself. That's what brings Him glory. That's how you and I get to answer Jesus's prayer. You bring God glory by trusting his story. <laughs> you bring God glory by trusting his story. The story of how Jesus came, the story of how he showed us the Father's love, because you know the promise and the truth that his word is worth keeping. Because as he prayed in verse 8, you have believed that God sent him. It's not just that you believe the story, but that Jesus' story has become your story. That your story doesn't end in your failure. Your story doesn't end in the way that you just made a mess of everything. It doesn't end in your failures or your faults. It doesn't end with your sin and the disappointment. But your life becomes a proclamation of the truth 
of who Jesus Christ is, that he is Savior, that he has washed your sins away, and that you know that because you know God. And you see, that is eternal life. Jesus prayed this prayer for you, for me, that we might know him, that we might know his heart, that we might know that we can trust him. We are just a month away from Easter. We are a month away from our remembrance of the sacrifice that he made for our forgiveness. But it's here in John 17, a prayer prayed the night before that sacrifice, that he calls us to know his heart and he calls us to glorify him. You know, that's something that we do as we take communion together, whether we're in person or whether we're, whether we're online together like this. We come to glorify him. It's a, it's a remembrance of what he's done. And by taking it, we're lifting him up, we're exalting him. We're going to do that in just a moment as we take together. If you've got some bread, if you've got some juice, have that ready. We're going to pray first. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. Thank you that you've not hidden yourself away in some far distant place, but that you came near to us as your son. You came near to us to show us your heart, to show us what eternal life is really like, because you showed us yourself. Lord, we look forward to that promise. And today, we offer you ourselves again. We thank you for the gift that you've given through your son. We thank you for the bread that reminds us of his body broken, the cup that reminds us of his bloodshed. We thank you that when you showed us the extent of your love, you gave it to us fully. You allowed us to see completely that love. Lord, I pray that you know our hearts just as completely. I pray that we give ourselves to you just as fully. We love you. Thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us today. God bless. Go in peace.